If you have a Bible, we're in Exodus chapter 13. <clears throat> Towards the end of that uh, particular chapter, we're going to pick up the story, as Jed said, on uh, the Exodus. <clears throat> I don't know if this is true, <clears throat> excuse me, but I think it is. Um, out of the 39 books of the Old Testament, that's uh, 1,400 pages in my Bible, uh, no story uh, um, probably is more familiar than the one we're going to talk about today, and that is the story of Exodus. Almost everybody has heard that story. <clears throat> or at least seen the movie, right? Um, and um, <clears throat> part of the challenges when you're teaching is when you end up with a very familiar text and that text has been wrung out like in every sense of the fashion of the word for, for pastors and pulpits forever. doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means that some people come going, oh, give me something new, give me something new, and more than likely, you're not going to get anything new. I mean, maybe you will, maybe you won't, that is, but that isn't the point. Um, but what, what I think we all need to see in, in a text like this, in all texts, really, it's the grand narrative of why and what is going on in everything that we see. And what's undeniable in this story particularly is God's ultimate purpose in everything he does. It's, it's in every passage of every portion of Scripture. His purpose is in every book of the Bible. It's in every second of every minute of every day of your life. His grand purpose is for his glory. That's what this thing is about. Um, is it a story of Israel's exodus from Egypt and slavery? Of course it is. Is it a story about an evil tyrant, Pharaoh, and a wicked people in Egypt? Yes, it is. Is it a story of amazing, mind-blowing miracles? Yeah, it's that too. And, and is it a story of fear and, and a rescue? Yeah, it's all that. It's got all the makings for a wonderful film. It really does. Um, but the greater and the better story within the story, and this is my word, so don't, don't judge me, God is stepping out and he's showing off in this passage. That's, that's what God is doing here. He's putting himself on display, who he is, what he does, and what he cares about. You, you, can't, you can't open the scriptures and get to Genesis 1, and when God speaks, it's about showing off. It's his glory that goes on display. In his creative order, in the way he makes man, in the way he confronts sin, in the way he deals with Satan, every single story is about the glory of God. In fact, it's no mystery here that that is his intention in this passage, because if you look at chapter 14, verse 4, God himself tells us the big purpose of this whole thing. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, speaking of Israel, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. If you recall back to chapter 5, it was Pharaoh who said, when introduced, introduce the Lord. He goes, I don't know him. I don't think about him. And everything from that point is God getting really close and personal. Let me show you myself. And here he's about to learn the ultimate lesson of who God is. Verse 17, he says it as well. He says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them, that's Israel, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and horsemen. Anybody confused on what God's grand purpose is in this passage? It is the glory, it is the glory of God. And perhaps you already know how this glory lesson will end. Like every time we encounter God. God's glory and I'll give you a rule. God's glory always results in his praise. That's the reality of it. Why does God display himself? For his own praise, his own glory. That's why he does it. So that's, I'm hoping, not only the grand narrative, but also where we're going to land with this sermon today is that we will praise him for who he is. Um, 
In this particular story, we will praise him uh, for his sovereign act of judgment and salvation. And I suppose uh, it's not very popular to take a hard look at the judgment of God and go, thank you. But when you see sin, wherever you see sin, the fact that God riles himself against it, you should say thank you. And in this story, and we'll see even next week in chapter 15, there's a song that was written about this particular exodus. And it all is about the praise of God's judgment and his salvation. So we're going to get our heads wrapped around that. If we do, and we notice it, and we worship and praise him for that, it'll sound a little bit like passages we've read in other places. David, many, many years later, writes a psalm that sounds like he's even remembering this story where he says in Psalm 96, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For the gods of all the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. I told you that next week in chapter 15, there's a song, there's a particular refrain in there that sounds like this. Who is is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. They're clearly recalling all the rescue of God in this story, and God gets the praise for it, his glory on display. Okay, one last little uh, thing before we dig into the actual story part of this thing. Just to remind you, this isn't an invitation to start sorting out how um, to overcome your own Red Sea moments. You know, that's not what this is meant to do. We're going to try to stay focused here on the same goal that God has with this passage. We want to leave here seeing him. That's what this is about, so let's uh, give ourselves to that effort. Chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, I want you to notice... That God has a plan for his people. Um, he says this, when, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Okay, when, when God, through the plagues, a series of judgments there, convinced Pharaoh to let the people go, and where they were going was this promised land in Canaan, the quickest, best way would to be take that, that, that coastal road going north. Go north, hang a right, and in 10 days, you're in the promised land. If you know the story of Israel and the Exodus, you realize that going south and into the wilderness meant 40 years of wandering. Now, there's lots of cause and effects in that, and we'll get to that in our, in our story. But if they'd have just gone north the easy way and hung a little right, they would have been home. And God leads them the opposite direction. And here's a lesson for us, a lesson for Israel that they're going to discover in this. And uh, I want you to embrace this because I think it's really the pow- powerful part of this section. God clearly has a plan. He could have taken them straight there. He could have beelined them right home, but he didn't. He has a plan. And the rule about God's plans are that God knows what he's doing. And what God's doing is good. You have to tell yourself that. You have to constantly go, okay, he's got something in mind. And what he's doing is good because he knows what he's doing. Um, The amount of things that God is busy about for his glory 
is humanly impossible to calculate or know. Your one individual life story has thousands and thousands of interconnecting pieces of God doing something in someone else's life or another time in the story. And you have no idea how to calculate when and what that is. I was reading a story in the news this week that most of it has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. But that one striking point that God's doing crazy stuff and you can't see it until you can see it um, struck me in this story. I want to read it to you. You'll get the point. The fastest growing church in the world is an underground persecuted Christian movement in the country known for exporting radical Islamic terrorism, Iran. This is when my mouth kind of hung open because I haven't heard this. People in Iran, a Muslim-majority nation, are fleeing Islam in droves as believers bow their knee to Jesus and become aggressively pro-Israel. What if I told you Islam is dead? one unidentified Iranian church leader says. What what if I told you that mosques are empty inside Iran? What if I told you that no one follows Islam inside Iran? Would you believe me? This is exactly what is happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully here. The pastor adds, what if I told you that the best evangelist for Jesus was the Ayatollah Khomeini? The Ayatollahs brought the true face of Islam to light and the people discovered it was a lie. After 40 years under Islamic law, a utopia according to them, they've had the worst devastation in the last 5,000 year history of Iran. More Iranians, get this, more Iranians have come to faith in Jesus in the last 20 years than the previous 1,300 years. I don't know. I mean, I'm just reading to you something. I'm not there. But that would be like God. If you're old enough and you remember where you first heard of the Ayatollah, it was back in the 70s at some time when you were paying attention to the news. And there's not a, not a person I couldn't be convinced that could look at that story and go, oh, that's going to be good. That's, God's going to do something with that. Every, everybody saw it in the way. We continue to see it in the way. God is not thwarted by what you consider in the way. God is doing something. He's always doing something. And here's, here's what I know, okay? For Israel... God is delivering them from slavery. That's obvious. But he's also growing their faith. God is confronting their idols. As we will see, he's judging their oppressors. He knows the territory and he knows the people who live in that territory, the Philistines. And he knows even though Israel's equipped for battle, they're not prepared for battle. So they're not ready. They're not, they're not going to make it. They won't survive. They'll tuck tail and want to go back home if they go into trouble. So let's take them to the wilderness around the Philistines. He knows Israel's limitation. He knows their weaknesses and fears. Like any father who knows his son knows here's what he needs. Here's what he can't handle. And God in his precision is bringing it in his time to Israel. Now, let me stop and try to make this sink to us here today. Do you believe that God knows what you need? Just think about it. Do you really? He knows exactly what you need and when you need it. Are you humble enough to admit that you really don't have a clue to all that God is doing and is up to in your circumstance? I mean, to be honest with you, our circumstances right here in our faces that we don't have the grand scheme of God. I understand that. I understand that. I understand it's okay not to know how. We almost never know how. 
In fact, rarely, sometimes, many, 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 many years afterwards, we go, oh, oh, that's what he had in mind. That's what he was up to. He was, he was going to do this and he was going to do that. Most of us can never see the ripple of God. We don't know what he's doing. But if you don't have this rhythm in your head, he knows what he's doing and what he's doing is good. If you can't say that, always, in every circumstance, you're going to be frustrated like Israel appears in this passage, okay? And just as a rule of thumb, just remember this, what looks like insanity to us is wisdom to God in every moment of your life, cool? All right, let's move on in the story. Verses 19 and 20 is kind of a parenthetical kind of insert here. Uh, maybe or maybe may not, it doesn't matter to you, but either way, it is a, it's a mention of Moses taking the bones of Joseph with them. And I would just call this a, a faithful reminder to Israel. You remember Joseph, when he was on his deathbed, said to those with him, like, listen, make sure that you remind that when the people go home, take me with you. Joseph had a clear mind's eye on the promise of God, and he never wavered that God would deliver. And at his deathbed, he said it, and they remembered it. You had this expression of faith for Israel to say, okay, he, he's delivering, let's go. And they've taken, they've taken Joseph with him. Look at verses 21 and 22. I, I want you to notice God is present. So, so we saw that you know, the grand purpose of this whole thing is glory of God. We've seen that God has a plan for his people. Now I know that God is present with his people. He says, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. I love this. God doesn't just know what's best for us and go point the way, like go there. He gets in it with us to make sure we get there. He goes with us. I call this the very first ever GPS in the world. Supernatural guidance and every minute, every second of every minute miracle for the people of Israel. A cloud by day and a fire by night that verse 22 said did not depart from Israel. It was undeniable and it was always there. Would you like that? If God said, I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna hang out with you. I'm not leaving. You'll always see me in this visible form in your circumstances. Does that remind you of anything, church? Some, some people would hear a passage like this and they would say, man, I'd, I'd believe if God did that. I'd be strong if God was with me like that. He is. And it's better than the cloud. It's better than the fire. Jesus said in John 14 that God would give us the presence of his Holy Spirit to live, to dwell in us. The triune God takes a place in our heart. He's closer than the cloud. He's closer than the fire. He is with all those who call on Jesus for salvation. He's present with us in every second of every day, presence with us. And his intentions are the same, to encourage our faith, to lead us, defend us, to teach us. That's the role of the Spirit. He's constantly working in our lives, confirming in us our faith. Now think about it for a second. Every day, Israel would look up and go, there he is. Having a bad moment, tired of walking, there he is. He's there, he's there. He's there all the time. I call it a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week sermon. And the sermon has a simple conclusion. 
I got you. And, and Israel needed to hear that God had them, that God was for them, that God was delivering them, that God would finish with them. It's the same role the Holy Spirit has in the church, by the way. Some of you are kind of under your own version of like oppression or your own version of worry or concerns and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and he screams the same sermon, I got you, I got you. Nothing, you saying it, nothing can separate you, nothing can, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This confession that we make is that Jesus has satisfied God's standard for our sin, he remembers it no more. And nothing can snatch you from his hand. That's the promise of the gospel we confess. Amen? Okay, let's get back to the story. Chapter 14. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land the wilderness has shut them in and he will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people and they said, what is this we've done? And we've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with their officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly or boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pyrohirath and in front of Baal-Zephon. So, so picture this. What looks like insanity, again, is God's wisdom. Israel's not lost. They're just following directions, all right? That, that's, that's why this front section of chapter 14 to those chasing after looks like they're just lost, man. They're just bouncing around in the wilderness. They're going in circles out there. One is God was luring in Pharaoh and his armies to think they are lost and they're easy prey. Um, and he thinks that because uh, they're easy prey, he can come down and without much, much suffering deal with them. But the text tells us something, and we've encountered it many times. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. God hardened his heart. And, and you should go back and listen to that sermon a few weeks ago if you haven't heard this before. But ultimately, God takes an action in Pharaoh's life. And the action's pretty simple. Don't illuminate. What you look at like, oh my gosh, who couldn't get that story? Who couldn't see God all over this thing? And, and just quit. Just quit. Pharaoh was not illuminated and he just kept going and God gave him over to his natural inclination and he just keeps going and he keeps going and comes after the people of God. They look around them, the, the Egyptians do, and they realize that they're going to end up having to work for a living because they sent all the workers away in the Exodus and so they come after the people. Now, in the story, we're still going to unpack the most, you know, the glamorous, the part of the, the movie story we all enjoy. But going back to our initial, like, obligation to think about the glory of God in all this, we've seen that he is precise in his plans, his sovereign plans for his people, and that he brings his presence to make certain his people get there. Right here is an island, in my opinion. We could pull out and you could read the story and still end up with the same conclusions most people make unless you deal with chap chapter 14, 10 through 12. What sits in those three verses is the study of man and the nature of sin. It's not comfortable. 
Because so far, if you just see God flexing his muscles all over for Israel, and he's going before and behind, he's everywhere, you're going to have a hard time with the rest of the story of Exodus because Israel looks like they've lost their mind too at time. Look at this. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." in spite of uh, mind-blowing, miraculous events and God demonstrating himself and that he was for Israel, they end up here. Israel does what we do from time to time. All they can see is the obstacles. They cannot see the deliverer. In spite of what he's done, in spite of what he said, all they can see is the invading army. Okay, does that remind you of anyone? I would suggest to you that every one of us is a natural-born fear factory. We just gin it up. If there's a question that we can't answer, if there's a problem we don't like, if there's a challenge or a sickness or a hurt or a pain, what happens? Fear grows. Fear just comes out of us. All Israel saw was they saw, they saw the sea in front of them, they saw the mountains on the left, they saw the desert on the right, and they saw Pharaoh in the rear. But here's God in a cloud and a fire, and they can't see him at all. And, and you think it's unique to Israel? It's in every one of us. They couldn't see their God. So what do they do? Same thing we do. First thing they do, there's three little trifectas of problems in this passage. They cry out. The passage doesn't mean cry out for, like, help. It's not a statement of prayer, like, of devotion to God or recognition that God would save. It was a panicked cry. It was not faith. It was fear only. And what is the second thing they do? They complain about the leadership. They look at Moses and say, you, you did it. You and your stupid decision, your leadership has brought us out here to die. You're going to get us killed. And then the last thing, and this is the most devastating blow of all, they choose slavery over freedom. None of it looks like sanity. None of it looks rational. I'd rather go back and make bricks without straw. I'd rather do anything than be here. I, you, God in front, God behind? No, I'm going to choose to go the other direction. It is by obvious, um, by observation, a horrible commentary on the nature of of our heart without God's help. From the very beginning of this whole story, you get in the beginning of, of the, even the, the plagues, God made his intentions clear that he was freeing his people so they could go to the wilderness and serve him. You remember that? He said it over and over and over again. And here we have the first like moment of fear for them. And because of that fear, they'd rather be slaves of their past and serve Pharaoh rather than serve God. Okay. We have the same problem. We have exactly the same problem. And I want to remind you here, just so that I'm not being insensitive, the only kind of people that God saves are people with a past. You know that, right? Everybody's got a closet. Everybody. He saves sinners. And that's the reality of it. But what is also common is that when God pulls us out of that, our dead condition and gives us a new name and he gives us a new heart, 
he begins a thing called sanctification, a transformative work to make us into the image of Christ. He starts working on us, confronting sin and teaching us about Jesus and making us lover of, of him and of others, and it just starts in the process. Well, Satan and your past no, want no part of you becoming like Christ, and it becomes difficult, and your past can come back and can whisper in your ear, hey, hey, this is just too challenging. It's too challenging. And so what happens to us? We're inclined to go back to our old stomping grounds because I know that life. I can have those relationships. I can do business like I used to do, and, and I, don't have to, I don't have to think because I just know how it works there. And I won't be afraid anymore because right now I'm having to walk in faith. I can't see how this lands. I look like I'm going to lose. I'd rather just go back to the way it was. Does it sound like Egypt to you? That's exactly what's going on. It's fear. It's forgetting the presence of God and being preoccupied by the presence of, I would call them, challenges or difficulties or whatever. And I'm not being insensitive. I totally get it. It happens for me too. Everyone has that struggle. But I want to encourage you with something here today. I want you to know that you can't go back to your past. God won't allow it. He will not put up with it. Here's why. And it's the, kind of the fourth thing we've seen about God. And it is this. He protects his people. Look at verse 15 through 20. And we'll get to 13. I know we're skipping it, but I'll get back. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the, the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and horsemen. Now listen very carefully to verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and a darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. I want you to see what's obviously clear in this passage. That God takes up a position to protect his people. Now what first comes to mind is invading forces coming after and so God takes a position between Egypt and Israel, and that's true. He, present, he prevents Egypt from getting to his beloved children. But I want you to see something else. He, presents, he prevents Israel from going back to Egypt. He stands there and says, there is no other way than to obey me. There's no other way than to go forward. You can't go back. Our God takes the same position with his children. He ultimately protects us and he prevents us from falling away. In other words, God is going to make it absolutely certain you and I get where he intends for us to go. He rescues, he redeems, he saves, he transforms, and he glorifies. That's his promise. And he will make certain it happens. The gospel makes it clear what that is. It says he'll make us new and we get to be with him. He's promised, and I wrote in my notes, and even we can't screw this up as much as we try. It's the promise of God. Okay, I'm going to try to just tell the story that we're familiar with because I'm out of time and there is a lot of verses here. So let me just get you caught up in what's going on. God moves between Israel and Egypt. God says to Moses, stretch out the staff across the waters and God does an amazing thing. 
He blows wind across the Red Sea. The water stands up on edge and it dries out the land. And then he says, go. And Israel goes and they march through on dry land with wall of water, wall of water. And they get to the other side. God says, Moses, stretch out your staff again as Israel's chasing you into the Red Sea and the waters crash in on the Egyptians and they all die. The text says that the bodies floated up on the sides of the shore to convince Israel that God was a rescuer. Reminder. That's what happens when you war with God. Now, that's the one we're familiar with. That's what the movies are made out of, that, that grand ending, okay? So what stands out to you? I know I said it quickly, but what stands out to you in this story? Here's what I see. That God utterly destroyed what was in the way of the salvation of his people. Do you hear the gospel echoes? It's so obvious you can hardly get away from it. I told Neil this morning, like everywhere I look in the Old Testament, there's this giant big shadow called Jesus. He's everywhere. It is in the stories and the narratives of the Old Testament pointing, 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 and here we are now 2,000 years after the cross going, that's our Savior, and it's the same thing. God in Christ has utterly destroyed what's in the way of our salvation. In the life and death and the resurrection of Christ, he has completely wiped it away. In Christ, your future is certain. In Christ, your sin is forgiven and forgotten. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed your transgressions from you. In Christ, your accuser has been obliterated. (laughs) In Christ, you're as holy as his son. And as much as Satan likes to pretend or think that he's got some play in dictating our present and our future, he doesn't, and he knows he doesn't. He has no control over those things. And so just like the sea for Israel, God's people follow God confidently in the midst of trouble. That's what happens. You and I as Christians, we're we're kind of walking the path, the path called salvation that God has blown open for us. And on our left and on our right, many times, there's these giant, enormous, looks like devastating problems, but he's dried out the way of salvation for us in Christ. And we follow. Maybe you're here today and that this sounds like news to you. Like you didn't know the story of Exodus or maybe you didn't see the shadow of Jesus and all this. And so there's something tugging on your heart. I, I can understand that. You might be asking questions. Is it possible that God could rescue me from what oppresses me? Could, could God do that? Could God be my redeemer? Could God be my rescuer? Does he love like that? Could he love me like that? Could he save like this? I mean, maybe those are questions you ask. And if you ask those questions, you probably think logically, like, okay, what do I do, right? That's a reasonable question. If it's true and I want what you have, what do I do? Let me give you the answer. You do nothing. Little tongue-in-cheek, but look at verse 13. This is, let Moses answer the question you just asked. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm or stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Silent is a much more stronger word there. It means kind of shut up. Stop freaking. And just watch God flex his muscles for you. That's what it means. He's for you. You should make the connection here between what what Moses said to the people about God's delivery for them and what Jesus offers us. You can't work your way out of your problems. You can't outrun the enemy on your own. You, You can't work enough. You can't be good enough. You can't pray enough. You can't fix enough things. You can't sort out your own life. You can't make yourself presentable. 
What do you do? What do you do if you need rescue from your things that oppress you? What do you do? Stand still and watch God flex his muscles for you. Believe. That's what we do. We don't work. We believe that the work of Jesus is applied to us by faith. That's what we do. Jesus, you did the work. You fought the fight. You bore the punishment. You give us the righteousness. Everything needed for the rescue is Christ. I put my faith and trust in Christ. It's that simple. Stand still and watch the salvation of the Lord. Keep your mouth shut. That's what it says. We don't work, we believe. And in a wonderful like twist of language, it sounds like this. God is the one who plans our rescue. The text tells us before the foundations of the world, he has affections pointed at his people. God had that plan. He's the one who directs our way out of sin, like out of Egypt, out of the place that oppressed us, out of the place that kept us down. God is leading us that way. He's the one to punish our oppression, our sin. He punished it fully in Jesus on the cross. And it was satisfied there. He's the one who by faith saves. And he's the one who protects our salvation for all time and eternity and nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the hand of God in Christ, nothing. We are, in a sense, an Egypt. And God is still rescuing in profound ways. For those of us who know Christ, we just want to get out of the way and say, okay, that's glorious. I just want to praise him because all glory equals praise, right? I said that. To some of you who don't know of this Redeemer and it's just wooing your heart, then I want to free you up to come. And you just, you just confess that Jesus is the Exodus. Jesus is the way through the Red Sea, quote unquote. He is the way out of your sin, out of your slavery, out of your problems, out of the judgment. Jesus took it for you. And by faith, watch the salvation of the Lord. Does that make sense? Like I said, we're gonna finish where we started. All of God's glory displayed results in God's praise. So as I pray and we dismiss, let's, let's praise him for what he's given us. God, every time we open your word, it is so encouraging and so illuminating. It's hard for us to get our heads around how perfect your plan is, even when we discover pieces of it. But God, in this story, we see ourselves, we see you legitimately redeeming your people, Israel, thousands of years ago. And we also see a picture of your redemption for all people who would come to Christ. Who can't save themselves, can't rescue their situations, can't sort out their problems, but they need a savior. They need a rescuer. And you're that rescuer. You always have been. So God, in response to what we saw today, as a reminder again, God, we just want to give you all praise, glory, and honor. Our words don't, our words aren't enough. Our time isn't enough. But God, let, let our lives be the offering of praise to you. We are so grateful. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.